Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport, a retrospective series on the most extraordinary riders, races and stories in cycling history. I'm Graham Wilgos. I'm still recording from the safety of my spare room, so the sound quality might not be the same as it would be were we in the Eurosport studios. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe and produced by Pete Burt. In this episode, we remember a forgotten legend. Alex Vero was an artist and adventurer who flew planes and crossed oceans. An intrepid reporter who rubbed shoulders with presidents, kings, popes and dictators. A pioneering broadcaster who brought the Tour de France to life and in doing so, paid with his own. It was Bastille Day during the 1957 Tour de France a race dominated by the host nation. Marcel Kaye, the rider who would win a tour stage two years later, was the last person to see Alex Vero alive and the only person to witness the chilling death of a man who was part of Tour de France furniture. Here's how he remembered it. The motorbike started to accelerate. Then, about 50 metres in front of me, lost its balance on the gravel and started zigzagging as the driver fought to keep it upright. It hit a barrier, then another, then flew into emptiness. I saw two sets of legs in the air and shoes flying off. Never in my life will I forget it. A promising French debutant named Jacques Anquetil had a firm grip on the yellow jersey and the whole of France tuned in to follow Vero's trademark radio updates as the race headed back onto French soil in the undulating Stage 16 from Barcelona to Aix-le-Terme. Covering his 22nd tour on the back of a motorcycle, Vero had drawn up alongside Kaye to give the rider information about the time gaps. Kaye, a Frenchman from nearby Pay Basque, rode in pursuit of lone leader Jean Boulet, another plucky second-tier regional rider from Brittany, when the accident happened. Boulet, like his pursuer, 27 years old and riding a maiden tour, 
held a large gap as the road snaked up towards the Catalan town of Ripoll via a gorge carved out by the River Ter. The Breton rode towards the biggest win of his career, unaware of the drama playing out in his wake. My victory was beautiful, Borlet told Le Depeche in 2007, on the 50th anniversary of his breakthrough win, but it was spoiled by the accident that cost Alex Viro, the sports journalist, and René Wagner, his driver, their lives. 67-year-old Viro, who had made the tour's first live radio broadcast in 1929, fractured his skull when his motorcycle careered into the ravine in the foothills of the Pyrenees. He was killed instantly. His driver, Wagner, died soon after in hospital. Viro remains the only journalist in tour history to have been killed in action. So, who was Alex Viro? Born in Paris in 1890, the figure whose Good Morning Dear Listeners line became synonymous with the tour was a man of myriad talents. An amateur actor, artist and silent movie star of minor repute, Viro had trained with the prolific sculptor Antoine Bordel. It is even said that he modelled for the face of Bordel's masterpiece, Hercules the Archer. Working as an illustrator and caricaturist for numerous newspapers, Viro even won a silver medal for a football sketch at the 1928 Olympics in an era when the Summer Games rewarded artistic endeavour as well as sporting prowess. Viro had already carved out a budding career in written journalism when he picked up a radio microphone for the first time. The 22 tours he would subsequently cover were littered with landmarks. The tour's first remote radio broadcast made outside a studio in 1929 for Radio Cité. The first live recording from a mountain stage in 1932, atop the Col de Bisque, and, in the same year, the first recording made from the cockpit of a plane. Viro, you see, was a trained pilot who fought in the trenches during the First World War. Cycling was by no means his only specialism. Viro covered football, boxing, motorsports and skiing. His familiar voice announced the inaugural draw of France's national lottery in 1934 and thereafter. In 1935, Viro brushed shoulders with the great and the good while accompanying President Gaston Dumergue on the maiden transatlantic crossing of the Normandy, the largest, fastest passenger ship of its time. There followed a stint in New York as he honed his journalistic techniques at NBC. As a respected war reporter, Viro capped his coverage of the Italian invasion of Ethiopia with an exclusive interview with King Haile Selassie. Months later, he reported on the Spanish Civil War. His crowning moment, however, came in 1938, when covering the Ski World Championships in Switzerland. On hearing rumours of the German invasion of Austria, Viro caught the first train to Vienna from where he defied strict Nazi censorship to snare one of the biggest pre-war radio scoops. Speaking down a telephone in a bar, Viro dictated a live report that would go down in history. In front of my eyes, the first waves of German soldiers marched by, Viro said, according to the memoirs of Marcel Blustein, his boss at Radio Cité. I opened the cabin and stretched the wire as far as I could so that I could stand by the entrance. I saw the first lines of soldiers entering Vienna and the familiar sounds of their boots could be heard over my report. 
my idea had succeeded perfectly. His ingenuity and resourcefulness were further rewarded when, by some fluke, Hitler's car, flanked by tanks, motorcycles and a sea of swastikas, stopped, according to Vero, hardly three metres away. The Chancellor, he said, got out and saluted a general right in front of my eyes. Six months later, Vero ran into the Fuhrer again, as well as Messrs Mussolini, Chamberlain and Deladier, when covering the Munich crisis. It was probably not as blessed an experience as his previous audience with Pope Pius XI, who had inaugurated the Vatican Radio in 1931. Later, under the French occupation, Vero became a key player in the resistance in his native Savoie, where he earned his nickname, Captain Alex. After the war, the swashbuckler returned to his roots to become the Tintin of the Tour. Following brief stints at L'Equipe and the French national broadcaster RDF, he joined Radio Luxembourg, where he worked until, and on, the day he died. As far as CVs go, Vero's bordered on the fictional. If radio radically altered the way the French public experienced the tour by creating a vivid immediacy that the print press was unable to match, then Vero was at the epicentre of this seismic shift. With live television images from the tour not introduced until the year after his death, Vero was very much the Phil Liggett, Carlton Kirby, David Duffield or Rob Hatch of the pre-TV era. It's said that Vero drew on his artistic heritage to paint colourful, spoken portraits of riders and their surroundings that were unmatched by his peers. Recalling his memories of the tour as a child, the writer Noel Chulo wrote in Le Keep in 1990, For me, cycling was first and foremost a voice, and Vero wrote a sonorous text with his microphone that lay somewhere between the popular novel and an epic tale. The advent of live radio broadcasts during the tour had a profound effect on the world's biggest bike race. Vero was at the forefront of the radio revolution that helped people discover the noises of the tour and the regions it passed through, from the cheering crowds on the Obisque to the clicking cicadas of Provence. Swiss newspaper Nouvelliste Velezanne reported after Vero's death, he carried out his work with such a consciousness that he noted all the details, believing they were all important. From his reports, we discovered his desire to describe as faithfully as possible what he had just seen. There were moments, however, when Vero did get a little carried away. On hearing him, in 1930, describe in bold detail a crash on the Galibier involving a practically dead André Le Duc, the Frenchman's grief-stricken parents allegedly closed their post office and drove all the way to the Alps. Legend has it they arrived just in time to see their son win the stage and consolidate his yellow jersey. Despite occasionally over-egging the creme brulee, Vero was, for the most part, a bastion of level-headedness, objectivity and precision. He was a man, according to his colleague Raymond Marsalak, plagued by restlessness. After he had finished running after the facts, remembers Marsalak, he ran after his microphone. Once he had his microphone, he ran after his observations, after all those evocative adjectives, and after the riders he wanted to interview. And, if you believe the rumours, riders were not the only thing Vero chased. 
Yes, he was very attractive to women. Sophie Olchansky, Viro's granddaughter, concedes. Not only was he handsome, he had a free spirit that ensured he lived a very nice life. He never stood still, didn't fear anything or anyone. He always lived with his luggage ready at home and a map of the train times in his pocket. He never married. He loved women far too much for that. In fact, he always told my father to avoid marriage and just enjoy life. Being unattached, it's fair to say having children was not part of Vero's life plan. It's funny, Sophie says. No one actually knew Alexander Vero had a son. Even he didn't know at first. Vero had been conducting an amorous liaison with the high society wife of a rich industrialist and close friend of Charles de Gaulle called Roger Olchansky. It was a marriage of convenience, and Roger's wife, Alice, would often stay with Vero in his chalet at Chamonix. When Alice fell pregnant, she confided in her husband. There was no divorce, Sophie explains. It was all hushed up, and Olchansky agreed to raise Daniel, my father, as his own. But when Daniel's older brother, Jean, was taken in the infamous Veldiv roundup during the occupation, the Olchanskys decided to send him to stay with Vero. Knowing that Alex was in the resistance in the Alps, they sent my father, who was 13 at the time, to Savoie to be protected by him. To get there, he had to be hidden in a cow's carcass inside a butcher's truck for 24 hours. It was during this time that both father and son finally learned the truth. It was the start of a good relationship, says Sophie. They stayed in touch after the war. Alex was a very good father for my dad. Daniel was 28 when he heard Vero's death announced on a news bulletin on television. It was a huge shock, says Sophie. He went to the funeral, but he had to keep to the side because no one knew Alex had a son. Conscious of the risks, but driven by his meticulous professionalism, Vero followed cycling races only by motorcycle, covering the last 10 of his 22 tours as Pillion to his friend Wagner. Neither man wore a helmet. They were not compulsory on French roads until 1973. People often ask me why I insist on covering 5,000 kilometres of the tour on the back of a motorcycle, at an age when you'd expect me to be offered the best comfy chair back at home. It's quite simply so that I can follow all the battles at close quarters, to see something you cannot view or experience from a car. These were the words of Vero, as reported by Le Monde, two days after his death. Covering the tour was an eternal time trial for these early radio pioneers, who were constantly battling to make it to the next phone box to deliver three daily reports. The Radio Luxembourg car effectively a makeshift studio emblazoned with Vero's name on a panel across the top, would drive ahead to scout out broadcasting locations while Vero sought material by getting as close to the action as possible with Wagner. It's worth adding that the experienced Wagner was known for his bike handling skills, an excellent safety record. His first ever bike crash would also be his last. The Bastille Day stage, won by Jean Boulet in 1947, finished some 40 kilometres southeast of Foix in the spa town of Aix-le-Terme. The day before, 
Tour debutant Jacques Anquetil retained his yellow jersey with a commanding victory in a 10-kilometre time trial in Barcelona. Anquetil was the Tom Dumoulin of his era when it came to racing against the clock. Such was the then 19-year-old's imperiousness during a time trial in Rouen in 1953 that Vareau had even questioned on air whether kilometres in Normandy were only 900 metres long. Having taken the race lead a week earlier in the Alps, Arcatil carried a four-minute lead over compatriot Jean Forestier into the Pyrenees. With a second, longer time trial on the horizon, his Mayo Jean looked increasingly safe. Given that it was a national holiday, French fans would have tuned in en masse for that Sunday's 220km stage 16, which brought the race back into France via the Col de Tossas. Borlet rode clear after 60 kilometres, prompting local favourite Marcel Caillet to set off in pursuit. Vero and his driver followed suit. With the first climb approaching, Vero delivered his lunchtime report at 12.30pm. It would be his last. In a tribute published in L'Humanité in 2001, the veteran miroir sprint journalist Émile Besson recalled his friend's final moments. The die had been cast, the atmosphere very calm, Besson wrote in the article entitled Adieu au Capitaine Alex. Next to us, and on his motorbike, Alex Vero, the great reporter at Radio Luxembourg, chatted away with his hand clasping our wing mirror. In front, Borlet rode clear on his long break. Vero said to me, Right, see you later. The tour is over. A few hundred metres later, we saw a crowd gathered on a slight uphill corner. Vero and his driver Wagner were lying in a gully. We ran down quickly, but Vero had died on the spot. A report in the Nouvelliste Velazan expanded on the cause of the accident, claiming the motorcycle was driving at only 30 kilometres per hour because Vero had slowed to speak to Kaye. It read, Suddenly, the motorcycle skidded on some gravel and clipped a road marker with one of its cylinders. Knocked off balance and no longer under the control of the driver, the motorbike fell into a ravine 10 metres deep, where it crashed against the rocks beside a small river. Unsurprisingly, the incident made front-page news in France. The peloton wrote an editorial in Miroir Sprint didn't seem to understand the commotion as it passed the tragic spot. The tour continued for sure, but its spirit was no longer there. Everyone was thinking about Vero and his driver. When they later found themselves in Aix-le-Terme, squeezed side by side, the radio reporters felt an immense emptiness. In front of the microphone, one of theirs was missing. How could these two men, who had completed ten tours together, die in such a way. Le Mans spoke of the horrifying accident that had killed the doyen of the press room. Vero had become a victim of his mission to inform in the very dangerous game that journalists face daily while following the race. To lose one's life in a sporting spectacle in which one is not even participating is to pay too much, it concluded. The Nouvelliste Velezan spoke of the cruel destiny which forever deprives us of a man esteemed by all and whose serious and sympathetic voice 
stirred thousands of listeners. A minute's silence preceded stage 17, with the media caravan engulfed in sadness, according to Miroir Sprint. Many riders and journalists wore black ribbons around their arms. When Oncatil was crowned champion less than a week later in Paris, the 23-year-old paid homage to Vero on the podium. Like many of his peers, France's new tour champion would attend the funeral, and a commemorative plaque was soon erected at the spot where both men lost their lives. But it was not just those directly involved in the tour who felt an acute sense of loss. Think of those very listeners for whom the voice of Vero had become as familiar as that of a dear relative. In his memoirs, the journalist Maurice Achard, at the time a young boy, recalls his despair, claiming it was up there with the death of his father. My half-sister could have died too, he wrote, and I would have been less touched by her death. The void left by Vero is apparently still felt even today. Writing to her local paper, Vosge Matin, on July the 3rd, 2013, the day Mark Cavendish notched his 24th tour scalp in Marseille, amateur historian René Viard expressed her admiration for the bees of the tour, the motomen who bring the race to the people and whose work is often overlooked. I remember returning home in a hurry after work to listen to the Good evening, dear listeners of Bon Papa Viro, she wrote. I still haven't forgotten his voice. Then, one evening, the reporter who followed the tour with him, in floods of tears, announced the sad news. Our Bon Papa Viro had fallen into a ravine with his driver and we would no longer be able to hear his voice. All the listeners, for we didn't have television at the time, were deeply saddened. Poor Papa Vero seems to be forgotten now, but I still think of him during every tour stage. Some good came of the tragedy. A reduction in numbers of race motorbikes was introduced in 1958, along with a special pre-Alex Vero awarded to the tour's most loyal rider. Frenchman Edouard Delberger was the first to win a prize that ran for a decade alongside a host of other minor gongs, such as Luckiest Rider, Most Elegant Rider and Most Pleasant Rider. There was even talk among the Tour's motorbike drivers of introducing a pre-Wagner for the rider who yielded the most space when being overtaken. I'm proud when I think of this prize, says Sophie Olchansky. For me, loyalty means honesty and a loving heart. It's one of the most beautiful values and proof that my grandfather was clearly a good man with a strong character. He was passionate, focused on his goals, and very alive. The French press were quick to claim Vero's death was an accident waiting to happen. Le Monde listed a handful of similar incidents that had almost cost journalists their lives. Most notably Jean Lelio, the Paris-Nice organiser and close friend of French writer René Vietto, when During a decisive tour time trial in 1947, Vietto witnessed the aftermath of a bloody motorcycle crash involving Lelio. He was allegedly so traumatised that he conceded 14 minutes, scuppering his chances of winning the tour. What the public must know is that to throw 80 riders onto mountain roads in the rain and mist, with 50 motorcycles and 10 cars belonging to journalists who must see and hear everything, and get to the finish ahead of the riders, whatever the weather, and at all costs, 
is a dangerous game, said Le Monde. The author, Jean Castera, spoke of two races, one between the riders and the other between the journalists jostling to cover the action. Let us hope that the organisers do not forget this death in a hurry, he wrote. Sixty years after his death, Verreau's legacy still lives on. And while there are no plans for ASO, the tour organisers, to reward loyalty in the peloton by reinstating the pre-Alex Verreau, Christian Proudhon, the race director, paid his own tribute to a forgotten man who had a huge impact on the race we've come to love. Alex Verreau was a great witness of the tour, by plane or by motorbike. He was one of those who created and wrote the legend, said Proudhon. The tour is what it is today thanks to people like him, who put words on the race and described the story of its champions. The tour is an invention of journalists, created by the written press and popularised by the radio. And Alex Verreau was one of radio's first stars. He had a great talent of gauging the atmosphere and bringing the race alive for those who couldn't be there. He tragically died on stage, like Molière, as we say in France, on the day of the French national holiday. But he will definitely remain an important narrator of the Tour de France story. The final pre-stage broadcast made by Verreau the day of his fatal accident makes for moving listening. Radio Luxembourg listeners, good morning. As you can hear from the loudspeaker, we are deep in the theatrics of the sign-on before today's stage. Here we are in the Place des Catalans, and the people of Barcelona have got up bright and early, which is not normal, I tell you. They must really love the tour to have come to see the start at this hour. First, Varroa costs Jean Bobet, the less illustrious younger brother of triple tour winner Louison, who talks about his injured finger and his ambitions for the rest of the race, to be best placed of the French regional riders come Paris. And it's a beautiful ambition, says the avuncular Viro. We've really been forced to make do with the scraps thanks to the superiority of the French national team, replies Bobet. In all, France would win 17 of the 24 stages that year, as well as the overall, points and team classification, and a Frenchman wore yellow from start to finish. Yes, they're running away with everything. They are rather formidable, says Verreau. Well, they're obviously very strong, Bobet counters. They're strong, of course, but they're also extremely greedy, jokes Verreau a nod, perhaps, to Oncatil, whose voraciousness was well documented. Good for them, says Bobet. It's just a pity for us. But don't they have indigestion, quips Vero. Bobet laughs. Maybe they will. Reminiscent of a latter-day Martin Brundle patrolling the Formula One pits, Vero continues bumping into riders and media personalities alike. He talks to Nicholas Barone, the yellow jersey for a day in the opening week, before questioning another Frenchman, Pierre Ruby. He then tells a journalist his thoughts about the upcoming stage, claiming, It's a bit unknown. No one is familiar with the profile, and it's hard to make any predictions. A trio of Belgian riders of Verreau's last port of call before he bids adieu to those listeners having their Bastille Day breakfasts.
Given the gift of hindsight, his final words prove particularly poignant. Alors, listeners of Radio Luxembourg, I'll return for our programme at the arrival of today's stage, which should be around 4.27pm. Of course, provided we're not delayed in any way. Bon appétit. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport. Written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Produced by Pete Burton and edited by Ola Fisayo. If you've enjoyed this or any other episode, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your favourite shows. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.